morning, everybody. Great to uh, see you all. Thank you for making it all the way to Belmont. It is beautiful here, isn't it? This is a beautiful spot. Okay, as we um, turn to God's Word, let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus. Father, as we uh, come and study your Word together, Father, we ask that you would be our teacher by your Holy Spirit. Father, your word says that all flesh is grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Father, in you we put our trust. Amen. Amen. Well, I was, um, well, firstly, I would just say for those of you who visited, I'm really welcome. My name is Martin Slack, I'm a pastor of Wesley. Um, just going to make sure this is nice and tight. I recently attended a conference where Jesus hardly got a mention, in which, if it was a medical conference, or a business conference, or a research conference, would not be surprising, would it? The problem was, is that this was a conference for pastors, and Jesus hardly got a mention. And I left thinking, wow, that is just a bit odd. And I say that because after his resurrection, Jesus met two of the disciples, or two of his followers, on the road to Emmaus. And Luke tells us that, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, which means that wherever you turn in the Old Testament, obviously for the New Testament, wherever you turn in the Old Testament, from Genesis onwards, whether that is the history of Israel, whether it is the writing of the prophets, or the Psalms of David, or the Proverbs of Solomon, wherever you go, it is all, ultimately, about Jesus. Okay, which is why Charles Simeon, the great 18th century preacher, had inscribed on the inside of his pulpit the words of the men who came, the Greek guys who came to Philip, asking him to introduce him to Jesus, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Okay, it was a reminder every time he got into the pulpit Simeon, Charles Simeon, whatever passage you are preaching from, it is all about Jesus. Show them Jesus. Okay, so beginning today, we're taking a break from Mark's Gospel, and we're starting our summer series on Christ in the Old Testament. I hope you're going to enjoy it. And we're going to look at Melchizedek the priest. We're going to look at the Feast of Passover, we're going to look at the promises to David, we're going to look at Daniel's visions, we are going to look at Isaiah's suffering servant, we're going to go to the Psalms and to the Proverbs, and hopefully we are going to see Jesus. But we're going to begin with the passage that was read to us earlier from Genesis 22, and this event that is known as the Binding Isaac. So if you've got the Bible, you might want to turn to Genesis chapter 22. The first point is the call. Now, if it gets too noisy, feel free to shut the windows. Okay, the call. Look at verse 1. After these things, after what things? 
the same as always, isn't it? The things that came before. After, after the things that have happened in chapter 21. And Abraham is old. He's an old man. And, so is, and, and Sarah, his wife, she's old. But after years of being barren, after years of clinging to this promise that God is going to give them a son, and that through that sign, the whole world is going to be blessed. In their extreme old age, Sarah had given birth finally to the son of Isaac. Let me ask you a question. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Okay, because if you're an optimist, there is, to every cloud, there is a silver lining, isn't there? Okay, but as every pessimist knows, what is there to every silver lining? There is a cloud. Okay, the birth of Isaac, that is the silver lining, but there is a cloud, because the birth of Isaac sets off a conflict, a conflict in Abraham's household, a conflict between Sarah and her slave girl, Hagar. Why? Because Hagar has also had a son by Abraham Ishmael. And Sarah demands that Abraham dismiss and get rid of Hagar and Ishmael. It obviously that deeply upset Abraham. Ishmael is his son. But as he's trying to work out what to do, God speaks to him and tells him to let Hagar and Ishmael go because he, God, is going to take care of them. There's another reason. He says that the reason Abraham should let them go is that Isaac shall your offspring be named. What does that mean? It means that all of the promises that God has made to Abraham, all of those promises to him, to bless him, all of those promises that through him the whole world is going to be blessed, that kings are going to come from him, and that his offspring are going to be as countless as the stars. All of those promises, they are going to narrow down and come true. They're going to come to pass through this boy Isaac. So back to verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. Now you almost certainly know about tests, don't you? Especially if you grew up in Switzerland. But if you are Swiss, you definitely know about tests. So in beginning in primary school, with the can you draw a snowman test, okay, which one of our daughters failed because she gave her snowman a purple nose and not the obligatory orange nose. Okay, and the rule is snowman have orange nose. And what do the Swiss like? They like their rules, don't they? So she failed that test. Okay, but even if you are not Swiss, okay, you know you know about tests. You know about pass or fail tests, like your driving tests. But there are other tests, aren't there? There are tests on things like paintings, tests on things like precious metals, to prove whether or not they are a genuine article. And it is that kind of test that God is about to put Abraham through. Verses 1 and 2. God said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moab, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Now there are many things that we can talk about we will talk about those words, but one of the things that is striking is the similarity between what God says here and his initial call on Abraham back in chapter 12. Because back then, back when God initially calls Abraham, he says to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. You know the triplet. Country, kindred, father's house. And here, Abraham is to take his son, his only son, the son he loves, also a triplet, and offer him up. Back then, Abraham was to leave his home and go to the land that I will show you. Here, he is to go to Moriah and one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So once again, God is calling Abraham to step out into the unknown. And I reckon it is as if God is deliberately echoing his initial call on Abraham to trust him and to obey him in this, in what is going to be Abraham's greatest test. If you think about it, what is it a test of? Because God is testing him, but what is it a test of? It will firstly, it is a test of what Abraham loves most, isn't it? Verse 2 again. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and sacrifice him. This is the son whom Abraham had longed for and lived for. If ever a man loved his son, Abraham loves Isaac. That's the question, isn't it? Does he love him more than God? <coughs> is Isaac the center of Abraham's life? Is, is Abraham's life and heart wrapped around Isaac in a way that actually it should be wrapped around God, that God should be the center of his life, not Isaac? Does Abraham worship Isaac? Does his life derive its meaning from this son of his whom he loves? In the ordering of Abraham's loves, who's at the top? God or Isaac? Well, this test is going to take him, isn't it? But it's also a test of Abraham's faith. Because this is the boy on whom all the promises of God depend. Certainly. This is the boy on whom all the promises that God has made to bless Abraham and the world depend. And if Isaac dies, the promises die with him. So will Abraham do it or won't he? Does Abraham trust in his own thinking? Or, his, or does Abraham trust in his own thinking, in his own reasoning? Or does he trust in God? Does he trust that the one who made the promises knows what he's doing? Or does he, he think that he, Abraham, knows better what he should do? Deep down, does he really believe that when God says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, God means it and he will do it? Is Abraham's trust in God all talk? Or will it show itself in concrete, real acts of obedience? It's a test of faith. But of course, it's not just Abraham who faces tests like this, is it? I mean, think about your own life, think about your own heart. I mean, have you ever found yourself struggling? 
to give something up, to stop doing something, even though you know you should stop, but you can't because you love it, you want it too much, more than is healthy, more than you should. If you're a Christian, you want this more than God. Or maybe you don't want to take something on that actually you think the Lord is telling you to take on because you like your life as it is now. Okay, it might be something you need to stop, it might be some behaviour, it might be some habit, it might be some relationship, and your conscience is pricking you. Or someone has said something and you've, it, it's gone in. Or maybe you read something in God's Word and you know you need to do this thing or stop doing this thing. But doing it or stop doing it will cost you. Or it may mean a step out into the unknown as with Abraham. And it's a test. What do you love more? This or God? Whose word are you trusting more? Whose vision of life are you believing more? God's or yours? Okay, but of course the circumstances and the trials of life can also be a test of our faith. Because it is easy to be faithful to God and say that we love Him and that we trust Him when life is going well. But when it's not, what then? As Peter says, you have been grieved by various trials. So the test of genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honour. In other words, stuff can happen to you. Stuff can happen in your relationship, stuff can happen in your work, stuff can happen in your physical body that leaves you grieving. And Paul Peter says it is like being put in a refiner's fire. And when it happens, it is a test of the genuineness of your faith. Do you trust what God says or what you think? Okay, but notice how God begins this test, verse 1. Abraham. <coughs> he calls him by name. Because this is a God who knows him by name, who knows you by name. And when he asks you to do something hard, when obedience and trust are costly, he's not treating you like a number in the system. He knows you. He knows your name. He knows your situation. He knows your hopes. He knows your fears. But he also knows the plans and the purposes that he has for you. Okay, but however costly any call to trust and obey we might experience is, it is nothing in comparison to being told to kill your son, is it? Second point then, the cost. If you were Abraham, how would you have reacted? Do you hear this voice? Would you have dismissed it? You know, would you have dismissed it as the voice of the devil? Or maybe it's something bad you ate, you know, too much fondue last night? Or would you tell yourself that you're overstressed, you need a holiday, summer's coming? Because this isn't just senseless, is it? Or seemingly senseless. And this doesn't just contradict or seem to contradict what God has already said. It also contradicts God's character. 
But ask yourself, would Abraham have known that? You see, the Old Testament law with its command not to kill and God's abhorrence of human sacrifice, that's not yet been given. And in Abraham's day, human sacrifice was commonplace. Plenty of gods demanded it. And people really would sacrifice their children to appease the gods and to win the gods' favour and to win the, the prosperous life, the happy life that they wanted. And of course, we look on that. And we're horrified by it. We think, how could anyone do that? How could anyone sacrifice their kids? Except in our culture, we still do it, don't we? We still do it. Children are still sacrificed to the gods, just not the gods of stone. They're the gods of, it's my body, it's my life. The god of bodily self-autonomy, the god of choice, the right to choose the future, the happy life that I want for myself. Or there's the God of our career. And whether we deliberately set out to or not, we can find ourselves sacrificing our kids to our mother. I mean, how many times have my girls said, Dad, you are not listening. Shut your laptop. And yet, however common human sacrifice was in Abraham's day, this call was different, wasn't it? Because what becomes clear is that it is not Abraham or Isaac who are going to pay costs. Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning. Because he's not spending days dancing with God, he's not spending hours wrestling with God. His obedience is prompt. And he takes Isaac and two servants and the wood for the fire, and he heads for the place that God will show him. And then on then verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. With three days of traveling with this son whom he loves beside him, a son who is as good as dead. And then he tells the servants, verse 5, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham intends to go through with this, doesn't he? He's going to do this. He is going to obey God and he is going to sacrifice his son. And yet here he is telling the servants that they are both coming back. Abraham and Isaac were both coming back. Now what is that? Is that just him covering for himself? You know, does, he, does he know that these two servants, they also love Isaac? You know, maybe they have watched Isaac grow up and they love him. And if they knew what Abraham was going to do, if they knew the truth, they would stop him. Is that what he does? Is that, is that why he's saying we're both coming back? No. This is Abraham trusting God. You see, he may not know how God is going to do it, but he knows that God has said all of these promises are going to come to pass to Isaac. So even though Isaac is going to die, somehow, somehow, he is going to live. He's going to die, but somehow he is coming back. They are both coming back alive. Listen to what the writer of the Hebrew says. It was our second reading. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. 
And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. This is not empty talk on Abraham's part, is it? This is not him covering for himself. This is the first glimmer of dawn. This is the first glimmer of hope in the resurrection. That the God whom Abraham worships, the God who makes promises to bless the world through Isaac, he must also have the power to raise the dead. So Abraham and Isaac, they start their climb up Mount Moriah. Verse 6 tells us, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. Knowing verse 5, and Isaac is called a boy, that is a word that could be used for anything from sort of a boy up to a young man, a young adult. So Isaac, a dead man walking, a living sacrifice, carries the wood he would die on up the hill, while his father carries the fire and the knife. And as they go, Isaac asks his father, verse 7, My father, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb? And Abraham replied, verse 8, God would provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now what does he mean by that? Does he mean that Isaac's the lamb? Or that God will provide an alternative? Probably Isaac doesn't know what he means. He just trusts that somehow God will make life come out of death. That God will be true to his promises. And think about it again, sometimes it can be like that for us, can't it? You may, know, you may not know how God is going to turn this situation for God. If you are facing something and you see God's promises that he works everything for your good in Christ and you look at this situation and you cannot see how that is going to happen, but his word tells me that he will. So he will. And from this point on in the narrative, if you look at it, I think it's really interesting because it slows right down. This is a master storyteller. At the beginning, at the start, three days pass in a sentence. Now it is, it is as if we watch every movement in slow motion. Verse 9. Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Okay, as you watch that happen, ask yourself, why doesn't Isaac resist? Why doesn't Isaac resist? Why does he just seem to take this? I mean, he's a young man, most likely. He is able to carry enough wood to build an altar up a mountain. And Abraham, his, his dad, is old. He is as old as a hundred or more. Isaac could easily have overpowered him and wrenched his hands free. And yet he makes no protest. Why? Because while this is Abraham's greatest moment of faith, while this is Abraham's greatest moment of trusting God to bring life out of death, 
it is also the moment that seems to tell us what it is going to mean to be the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom the whole world is going to be blessed. What does it mean to be the offspring, the offspring of Abraham? It means to be a sacrifice, a victim who goes silently, a victim who goes willingly to the slaughter, that the one through whom all the promises and all the blessings are going to come true must first die. Verse 10. Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter the son. But just as that knife was raised over his son, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Do not lay your hand. So it was never God's intention that Isaac be sacrificed. Because the God of Abraham is unlike all of these other gods who demand our children. Instead, verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham's trust was proved right. God had provided for himself a lamb. God has provided a substitute for Isaac. And the writer of Hebrews is also right, isn't he? Abraham, figuratively speaking, did receive Isaac back from the dead. No wonder Genesis tells us, verse 14, so Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What will be provided? You see, the name that Abraham gives in this place is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And people have taken that as a promise that God will meet all of our financial needs, all of our, all of our material needs. Jehovah Jireh, I just have to have, you just have to have faith like Abraham's faith. God will provide. Let's be clear, God is our gracious, abundant provider. That isn't what this is talking about. It means that on the mount of the Lord, a substitute will be provided. That here in this place, God will always provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Last point then, the cross. The call, the cost, the and amazingly, centuries later, King David bought this place, Moriah, and his son Solomon built the temple on it. So it was here, in this spot, in what is now Temple Mount, that day after day, sacrificial lambs were slaughtered as substitutes for the people. But it's also right near here, on another hill, in this land of Moriah, that another substitute was made outside the walls of the temple, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And if Isaac's birth was miraculous, born to a barren woman, Jesus' birth was doubly saved, born to a virgin. And God called Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son whom he loves, and sacrifice him. And John tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The son over whom the father said at his baptism and his transfiguration, this is my beloved son. And 
here we watch as Isaac carries the wood of the sacrifice up the hill. In Christ, we see him bearing his cross up the same hill. As the wood is laid on Isaac, so the cross is laid on Christ. But who's holding the fire of life? They're in the Father's hands, aren't they? You see, in Acts, Peter tells us that though the crucifixion of Christ was the work of wicked men, ultimately, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But what happened to Jesus was whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, in other words, the fire and the knife are still in the hands of God the Father. And as Isaac's hands are bound and he is laid on the altar, Jesus' hands are nailed to the altar of the cross. But if here, with Isaac, as the knife is raised above Abraham's head, if here a substitute is provided for his beloved son, where's the substitute for God's beloved son? There is none. Why not? Because he is the substitute. And as the ram is caught by its head and the thickens by its horns, so Christ was crowned with thorns. He's crowned with thorns. Because he's the lamb that God has provided. Because the knife of judgment against sin, it wasn't hanging over Jesus. It was hanging over you. It was hanging over me. And just as it was about to fall, Jesus stepped forward to take our place. And he stretched himself out on our altar. You see, what Abraham is called to do here is just a shadow, isn't it? It is a sign pointing to what God the Father would do in Christ. And Abraham doesn't have to go through with it, but God the Father does. Why? Because Jesus is the ultimate offspring of Abraham. The one through whom all the promises of blessing to the world come. And they come through his substitutionary, sacrificial death. Hey, it doesn't end with death, does it? Because if after three days of Isaac being as good as dead, Abraham receives him back from the dead and Isaac rises and gets off the altar, so on the third day Christ rose from the grave and the Son, the only Son, the Son whom the Father loves, the ultimate and final offspring of Abraham, lives. Listen to what? God promises Abraham after this episode, verses 17 to 18. I will surely bless you, and your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then listen to how Paul applies that to Christ and the church, to you and me. Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also with him graciously give us all things? You 
You see, in the offering up of his son, our greatest enemies, your greatest enemy, Satan, sin, death, they've all been defeated. Christ has stormed the gates of your enemies. Which means that in him, everything against you has been broken. Every chain of guilt has been broken. It means that in Christ there is full and complete forgiveness. Even for those of us who have sacrificed our children to false gods. And seeing Christ sacrificing himself for you, would do something to you, wouldn't it? It'd cause you to sacrifice yourself for him and for others. Not to win his favour, but because you already have his favour. To sacrifice yourself for him and for others in acts of love and of service. Sacrificing yourself rather than sacrificing others for yourself. As Paul writes, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of God's mercy, see what Jesus has done for you and sacrifice yourself for him. Spend your life serving him by serving others. And when you see Christ stepping into your place as your substitute because he loves you, you will obey when he calls you to do that whole thing. And give that thing up. And give that thing up. And maybe you'll take this thing on. And you will step into the unknown. Because let me know that you can trust him. Why? Because he always keeps his promises. He always brings life out of death. And he always provides.